Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Sorry, I've got to grab my phone here because I'm getting a lot of notifications, uh, making noises, uh, notifications from a WhatsApp group that I'm in. It's about Friday five-a-side football. Who's in? Who's out? Who's paid their dues uh, for the next uh, session, etc., etc.? Have you ever noticed the uh, the muting options in WhatsApp? If you want to mute a group, you know, you think you could go in and just mute it for a little while, but you're, you're given three options. They seem a bit arbitrary to me because the options are eight hours, one week, or one year. Those are the only options you have. You can't set your own time. And you think, you know, in this day and age, when they were brainstorming around the WhatsApp HQ, you know, the tech table, whatever it is, someone would have said, hey, if you're in a group, it would be a good idea, let's say if you're in the cinema or if you're in work or whatever, uh, to be able to mute notifications from that group. And everyone, yes, yes, what a good idea. You're a genius. How long should we uh, allow them to mute it for? How about an hour two hours, four hours, six hours, 24 hours. Maybe even they could, you know, enter their own time, you know, put in numbers where numbers equal hours. So it could be 24, 48, 16, whatever you like. You could just mute it for that length of time. No, 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 no. We can't give them that much control. What we'll do is we'll just give them three options and that's it. It'll cause less confusion. Eight hours, a week, and a year. That's it. That's decided. Let's move on to something else. It is bizarre, right? It's like having a toaster where instead of the level of toastiness is one to six, it's like one, 16,000 and eight trillion, which means you would have to pay very close attention to your toast. If like me, you're somebody who likes their toast to be a bit more, you know, on the, on the dark side, erring towards burned. You can trust in your toaster when you've got the setting right. But if it's only between, you know, one and 16,000 and eight trillion, you're just going to have to manually toast your toast or go a different way. Could do it uh, under the grill, you know, like the old days or, you know, get a piece of bread and sit in front of an open fire with a stick and hold your bread there. That seems like an awfully complicated way to do toast. But that's where we're heading. That's where we're heading. If WhatsApp is anything to go by, and I think we know technology will take over all our lives, even Morphe Richards or or DeLonghi or whoever it is that makes toasters, toasters are us. They probably sell the toasters. In fact, yes, they do. Uh, toasters are us. Uh, that's down on third, along with uh, Toast Pocket. That's on third as well. And uh, Firebread, that's also on third. In fact, they're all down there on third, aren't they? That's the uh, the toaster district. Um, I'm just saying that at some point there's going to be a smart toaster, isn't there? A smart toaster that you can control with an app on your phone. And the only options available to you will be one sixteen thousand and eight trillion. It's the WhatsApp model. It's coming. And toast, as we know, it will never be the same again. We are, however, here not to talk about toast, even though it is probably a bit more interesting than Arsenal at this moment in time. Last game was a 2-1 defeat to Newcastle. That was fun, eh? Yep, another away defeat. Another away defeat in the uh, Premier League. Another away defeat in 2018. How many points do we have in 2018? None. Zero. O points. Null point. We are, the Arsenal, the only team without an away point in 2018 in all of top flight football in England. In fact, in the world, the known universe itself, every other team has got a point away from home apart from us. 
So it wasn't a big surprise to lose to Newcastle. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, does it mean that much? Is it that irritating when we lose a game in the Premier League right now because so many of our eggs, such as they are, are in the Europa League basket? Nicely segued from eggs to toast. All I need to do is get a bacon and sausage reference in in the rest of this intro. And we have got a full Irish breakfast on the go. Um, What am I saying? Yeah, Newcastle. Not good, not good, not great, but also remarkably unremarkable um, because of everything else that's gone on. So a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to uh, Tim Stillman about some comments that Arsene Wenger made about the attendances at the Emirates. Attendances, as we all know, whether you're a, a season ticket holder, whether you're somebody who goes to every game or has chosen not to go to every game, or if you're just watching on TV, we can all see that attendances at Arsenal, at the Emirates Stadium, have been dwindling uh, throughout this season. I, I, it's hard to know how many people are going to be there for the game against West Ham. The Atletico Madrid game is sold out uh, for next Thursday, which I guess is understandable. It's an exciting game. It's a semi-final. There's something at stake. They're a good team, a big team, and it's an exciting occasion. But people have voted with their feet. And on Thursday, Arsene Wenger was asked about it at his press conference. Was he, for example, worried about it? This is what he had to say. No, it's not to be concerned. We are sold out in every single game, so I don't know where the problem is at the moment. The concern, right, is that Arsene Wenger has it. Well, he's hit the nail on the head in one respect there. We're sold out. So what's the problem? Well, we're sold out, but people aren't going to the games. People have paid money for tickets and they are not going to the games. That's what the concern is. That's what the problem is. And uh, maybe, maybe it's something to do with not trying to rock the boat ahead of a, a big game against Atletico on Thursday. Maybe they just don't see this as a problem as long as tickets are being sold. But uh, a little bit later on, I'll be chatting to Tim Stillman about that. But I thought as well, uh, because it's been such a quiet week, you know, Arsenal lose, everything goes into radio silence. There's no uh, content out there as such, other than for us to analyze the bollocks out of another defeat, which I don't think anybody is particularly minded to do. I thought we might do something on the podcast this week, which wasn't entirely Arsenal. So a look at uh, the Premier League. Manchester City were crowned champions last weekend when Manchester United lost to West Brom. So uh, with me to talk a bit of Arsenal in a while, but more about the Premier League in general, also a bit about safe standing. I'm delighted to welcome back from Football 365 and other places to Daniel Story. Hi, Daniel. Hi there, you're right. I am all right. Um, before we talk about Arsenal, I just thought we might talk a little bit about Premier League in general. And this week, Manchester City have been crowned champions of the Premier League. They've won it with uh, five games to spare, I think. They didn't do it in perhaps the most dramatic style that they could have. They blew that chance uh, to win it against Manchester United. But Manchester United losing to West Brom means that they're the champions. Um, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that they've been the best team in the Premier League this season by some distance. No, not at all. Um, The gap in performance level and the gap in points reflects that. Um, I think we do need to be a little bit careful about... um, there seems to be a sense that this Manchester City title win was inevitable at the start of the season. Well, well, actually, it wasn't really like that. There were questions being asked of Pep Guardiola. There were mm. um, the bookmakers had you know kind of neck and neck, especially after the arrival of, of Lukaku and, and and especially Nemanja Matic at, at Old Trafford. Um, so this this sense that it was inevitable, I think, has has stemmed from the fact that basically since November, it's it's been a one horse race, um, and that is that is only to complement. City and Guardiola. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, about how Jose Mourinho is the the guy who always wins the league in his second season. Somebody posted mm-hmm. something yesterday. There was a list of, I don't know whether it was from one particular newspaper, but a list of journalists who make their predictions, as is the case uh, the start of every season, and pretty much all of them had Manchester United down to to be champions. So, obviously, the Mourinho myth has taken a bit of a, a, a hit this season in terms of the performance of Manchester United, but the way City have performed uh, has been remarkable really throughout as an Arsenal fan there was a, a period where we were worried <laughs> that they were not going to lose a game and thankfully they did <laughs> and that that record that we hold at this moment in time stays intact um, the, the cynical there are obviously uh, every time somebody does something good there has to be a what about or a, a, a perhaps a look at the other side of things is it easy mm. for you perhaps to separate what Manchester City have done under Pep Guardiola from the way they been able to do it from a financial point of view from the resources that they have at their disposal 
Yeah, I, I can separate it. That, it would be stupid to pretend that, that spending huge amounts of money doesn't make things easier. Um, and specifically being able to spend money on players who then if it doesn't work out, um, you can very easily reinvest. And, and Guardiola did that notably with, with Claudio Bravo, an upgrade to Edison. Uh, and to an extent has done that with the arrival of Merrick Laporte after... Um, John Stone struggles earlier this season, although Laporte was a player that had been tracking for a couple of years anyway. Um, so, yeah, of course, it makes it easier. I, I do think uh, still, though, that Guardiola, even despite that spending, has, has overachieved this season, um, partly because spending money and spending big money isn't easy. Um, Arsenal know that as, any, as well as anyone with you know, the struggles of two of their most expensive signings in Shkodran Mustafi and Granit Xhaka. Mm. Um, and also the age of the players that, that Guardiola bought. Jose Mourinho prefers and has preferred at United to buy um, players in peak performance. And, and although he was relatively young, I think Paul Pogba comes under that. And um, I think so does Romelu Lukaku and Nemanja Matic and Alexis Sanchez certainly come under that. Uh, Guardiola has done things a bit differently. You know, the signings of, of Leroy Sané and um, Gabriel Jesus, um, Laporte, um even Benjamin Mendy, um, he's buying players young. The average age of the players he's buying is is notably younger than those clubs around him. And and for me, that is the most impressive thing. It's the it's the speed of their improvement. If this was next season with the same squad, I'd say I kind of expected it, but I, I didn't expect it this season. Yeah, I mean, you say they've overachieved, maybe from a Premier League point of view, those yes. who want to look at Guardiola's record in Europe over the last number of years will point to that as an area in which... He perhaps fell short, certainly losing 5-1 to Liverpool was unexpected. Not that, you know, Liverpool versus Manchester City shouldn't be a competitive uh, tie over two rounds. And when you take into account Jurgen Klopp's record uh, against Guardiola, it's, it's very good. But I don't think anybody quite expected it to be quite that emphatic. Uh, and it's not the first time it's happened to Guardiola in Europe. It happened to him with Bayern Munich as well. Uh, is it a case that he's got to go step by step a little bit with this, though? He's done what he needed to do from a Premier League point point of view you know he he after his first season addressed issues that they very clearly had and addressed them this season we can see the improvement will it be a case this summer that perhaps he goes forward and and looks to to bolster his squad so it can be more competitive in Europe as well he has to quite simply because we know from from not just Manchester City but you know clubs around Europe that um success you're only as good as your last season, effectively. And, and success is something that has to be maintained and improved in order for managers and teams to continue to be complemented. Standing still is almost seen as, as moving backwards now, especially when you are one of the financial elite. Um, there remains a sense that you can get into a Guardiola team and that they will um, perhaps, you know, ironically, because of their dominance in possession in 90% of the games they play in, uh, there's a feeling that, they can concede goals in groups of two and three, that when they are suddenly put into a position of discomfort, they're not used to that position and therefore struggle to deal with it. And that's exactly what Liverpool did. And that's exactly what Manchester United did in the second half as well. Um, and it's also to an extent what clubs like Bristol City and Crystal Palace and Wolverhampton Wanderers did to them. Um, so they aren't used to that. Uh I can only see them improving next season. I don't think that the gap at the top will be the same in the Premier League because I think their rivals will improve. But I can only see them improving and being, um, if not stronger in Europe, then certainly uh, a little bit more pragmatic when teams come at them. There is a tendency, isn't there, when a team does what Manchester City have done this season and they've won the league so... Uh, I won't say easily, but by such a distance that we immediately hear stories and read things about how they're going to be the greatest team and everything else. Mm. Um, there's a tendency, I think, to overplay that. But where do you think the competition is going to come from? Because their their quality is such this season that they have been so far ahead of everybody else. I think uh, other teams can look and say they haven't quite performed as well as they should have. And, uh, you know, Arsenal are certainly uh, part of that. But it is going to take a lot, I think, for another club to come along and, and bridge the gap. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I don't anticipate either Arsenal or Tottenham challenging no. for the league title next season. Although I think both will look to improve and Arsenal certainly will improve, um, dependent on what happens this summer kind of structurally. Um, 
I think Liverpool are a complete unknown. Uh, and the and the issue, the, the point you raise is exactly right in that we don't know if anyone will challenge because there are so many unknowns in those clubs. I think Liverpool are an unknown after one spectacular season. Chelsea, as ever, are baffling in terms of this commitment to managerial short-termism that frankly works for them and has worked for them. But the suspicion, almost like the Southampton model, the suspicion is that um, next season will be the biggest test of this managerial short term as a model I think yeah. um, and Manchester United have big questions to answer about um, well, the investment on their squad and how big they go in a bid to, to compete with City because Jose Mourinho will stress he needs more and more players while at the same time to my mind getting nowhere near the best out of what he's got so yeah there's no doubt that City will be heavy odds on favourites to win the title next season and should be and as a near neutral, the hope is that you know is that someone can compete with them because if we if we pick up next season where we've left off this, um, yeah, it's going to be a, a long old season for the rest. Yeah, a title race is a good thing. You know, it is mm. for for football and for fans and for neutrals and. You know, even when you're uh, even when you're a club like Arsenal, if you're out of the title race, uh, if somebody else is, uh, if it's exciting, at least uh, it makes a difference. But I, I won't say that City's win has been underwhelming or anything like that. But just it's a bit anticlimactic because we've seen it coming for for so long. Um, one of the things that struck me over the last number of years is the the amount of money in the Premier League has ensured that, uh, has enabled rather clubs to go out and buy what you would say on paper are better players, better quality players. They can pay them better wages. It makes the Premier League more attractive. You know, you have clubs uh, traditionally in the lower half of the table spending big, big money on players that they never would have been able to attract previously because they haven't had the financial capacity to do so. And the thought, I suppose, was that this was going to make the Premier League more competitive. It would raise the level of football in the Premier League simply because you've got better players. I'm not sure that that has been the case. How have you viewed this season in general terms, in, in terms of the the football that we've seen throughout the season from top to bottom of the league? Is it a case that we're, we're seeing a better Premier League or is in some ways uh, the level not anywhere different from where it was in the past when clubs were cutting their cloth in a very different way? I think it's... I think there's two parts to that. Firstly, I think it would be it's, it's fair to say, and you know, hardly controversial to say that the top six clubs, although there is very small gap between Arsenal and Burnley in points positions at the moment, I think if if, if all clubs pay, play to their maximum, there is a huge gap between the top six and the rest. Uh, maybe this season you'd, you'd have to say top five and the rest or top four and the rest even. Um, but I think there is a huge disparity in terms of the the not just the results, but the standard of football that those teams are able to play. Um, I think at the top end, a couple of years ago, there was a kind of unwritten agreement between the best Premier League clubs that uh, the Premier League was not able to attract the best players in the world. Um it would have to make those players the best players in the world and then they might move on. And, and Mohamed Salah and Kevin De Bruyne, are the, the two standout candidates of Player of the Year, are perfect examples of that. Um, below that, I think, there's a, I think there's a bit of a mush. Um, I'm not sure whether that's because that mush is because the teams are of low standard or if they're just of a similar standard to one another. Mm. And therefore they realise matches are likely to turn on big incidents and therefore they like to reduce the number of those, you know, reduce the uncertainty around those incidents and we get quite tight matches. Uh, the one standout thing for me about this Premier League season is is that we've seen more than anything is that the impact that a manager can make. Um, Arsenal are an obvious example of that in that there is managerial uncertainty and managerial uh, dissatisfaction uh, and that has affected the club. Um, you look at the three promoted clubs and all three of them have the best manager that they could ever possibly hope to have in, in Wagner, Hutton and, and Benitez. And we've seen the difference that can make. And, and the three teams going down would have been a surprise at the start of the season, but that is simply because they have been abject managerial failures, both the ones they had and the ones they've replaced them with. So that's the standout thing for me. And, and personally, I, I quite like that idea. That's quite an attractive idea that the manager can make such a big difference. Um, but there's no doubt that there's this glass ceiling towards the top four that is 
growing season on season. Yeah, I mean, we have seen what a, what sort of impact a manager can have in a negative way as well when you look at what's happened, for example, at West Brom. Exactly. Where they didn't make any kind of... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Anything that wasn't just the obvious choice. They didn't think outside mm. the box in any way. And Alan Pardew has pretty much guaranteed their relegation. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> from a neutral's perspective, I hope that continues. And I hope it teaches clubs um, to look towards innovation uh, in their managerial appointments and not go down this tried and tested route that more than any other season this season. We've seen it with Tony Pulis. We've seen it with Alan Pardew. We've seen it uh, to an extent with Sam Allardyce as well. That, Mark Hughes, um, maybe as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you, you know what you're getting from these managers. And if you know what you're getting from these managers, then so do opposition coaches as well. And that make that can make them predictable and can make them um, easier to overcome than, than we've experienced in the past. To me, that's a really positive thing because it means we will get innovation. We will get fresh faces, which I think we all we all want. Yeah, I think that could be a motto for football clubs. More innovation, less pardew. Uh, it could be like, <laughs> we can all get on board with. like the this is Anfield sign that, that's there at the tunnel. Everybody sees it when they walk into the football club every morning. Less innovation or more innovation, <laughs> less pardew. Uh, words, words to live by. Just speaking of West Brom, it was interesting last week that they had an application to install rail seating, which if people don't know is essentially terraced, uh, uh, terracing at football clubs. It's a safe way of installing terracing at football clubs and bringing back standing. There is a campaign about safe standing uh, and bringing that back into the Premier League. We all know the reasons why uh, the stadia were made all-seater in the wake of the Hillsborough disaster, uh, the Taylor report. But what we have now is technology and an ability to allow football grounds to dedicate sections of it to fans who want to stand because it does make a difference. It makes a difference. It's very interesting to hear Arsene Wenger talk uh, on Thursday morning about safe standing. He says, I'm, uh, I'm in favour personally. I think atmosphere is much better when people people stand. He said, there are safety reasons, but if the safety is right, it has my 100% backing. However, it was rejected by the uh, by the government to West Brom. They seem to think that fans aren't really interested in this. Where, where do you stand on the idea of bringing it back? I think there's no question the atmosphere at Premier League grounds has suffered because of the absence of standing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely in favour of it. I... Um you know, as, as as long ago as 2014, football league clubs unanimously backed safe standing. Um, it was introduced, you know, almost two years ago now uh, at Celtic Park, and has you you only need to go to a game there uh, to notice that that is the area of the stadium that has the best atmosphere now. And they have had, um, I think I'm right in saying, absolutely no problems at all. Um, in, in enforcing it, in installing it, in maintaining it, in managing it, there have been no, no issues. And and across Europe, you know, there, there is safe standing in Austria, Switzerland, Hungary, Belgium, Norway, Germany. This is commonplace across Europe. I understand why English football is slightly reticent to do it. Um, but it's important to say, as, as you opened with, the one thing everyone could agree on is that safety is paramount. This is not a case of a give and take and, you know, making allowances on safety to increase better atmosphere. That's not the idea of the campaign. The idea of the campaign is to um, is to make everyone feel safe, but to also provide an environment in which football fans feel they can support their team more vocally and more enjoyably. And I don't see that there's any argument against that. Um, mm. I hope that this is just a setback uh, and there are reports coming out afterwards that, you know, rumouring on some of the reasons that the, the, the Premier League clubs have rejected this. And, and one of the things that they spoke about is that um, they also want a management of standing and seating areas, which happens at the moment and is, is far more dangerous than, than rail seating would be anyway. Uh, so I hope this is just a setback because, yeah, I'm, I'm fully in favour. Well, I mean, were you a little bit worried about how quickly it was dismissed and how, for example, the... I think it's whatever the the department is um, in the in the British government, which is boom, 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 Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, the minister, I think her name is Tracy Crouch. Is that right? Um, yes. You know, was sort of very dismissive about the idea that this is something that football fans want, and it strikes me that it sort of harks back to the old days where uh, what football fans actually want. And what the people think football fans want are two very, very different things. And there isn't that line of communication. And when you consider we do have 
for example, at every football club, you've got fans groups who are there to to represent um, fans of that football club. That's their remit. You've got uh, the Football Supporters Federation, for example, who want uh, to bring the views of football fans and, and spread them far and wide uh, under this sort of one umbrella. We have all these people talking about how safe standing is something that football fans want, yet it's dismissed summarily in two minutes by by this uh, government department. That is a bit of a worry, isn't it? That even with the communication we have right now, it's like a throwback to the old days. Yeah, and it's sad that football, it, it, it therefore feels like football cannot take ownership of, of these issues themselves. It, it, it's sad that it feels like we the sport does need to go cap in hand and uh, and ask for permission on these issues. You know, the original safe standing campaign, which the Football Supporters Federation got into as soon as it was formed in 2002, started as early as 1999. So this has been going on a long, long time. Um, and the research has been done. Um, the safety testing has been done. The, you know, the, the examples across Europe and now even across Britain have been looked at and have all been successful, not just in terms of atmosphere, but also commercially in terms of um, mm. raising ticket revenues and um Things like you know the, the the immeasurables like the the you know the fan experience and the market value of that. Uh, so, yeah, it does feel deeply disappointing that it can be dismissed so quickly because it only adds to this sense that um, that the powers that be and, and and government in general doesn't particularly care about football fans. Yeah, well, I think they've they've made that clear uh, <laughs> down the years more than once. But uh, hopefully, those people who are doing the work to bring this campaign to prominence will continue to do so. There is a petition which you you can find a link uh, on today's Ars blog if you want to uh, sign that petition because I think the more people that do the the better chance this uh, this discussion has of being taken more seriously. So we'll uh, we'll keep fingers crossed on that. Now let's talk a little bit about Arsenal uh, from Premier from a Premier League point of view. We've We've uh, used the words underperformance, and I think that's very true. Uh, Arsenal, the only team in the uh, top divisions and perhaps beyond without an away point in 2018. It is in stark contrast to the home record, which is really quite good. I think Arsenal are second or third in the the home table, uh, if such a thing were to exist. Uh, The away form is a big problem, and it's not something that Arsene Wenger appears any closer to sorting out. No, it isn't. Um, it, it isn't, and it, it is. It's a, it's a cliche, but you can you, you learn a lot more about a team with their away form than their home form. Frankly, especially a team with designs on finishing the top four. Mm. Um, the, the away record is appalling, uh, and not just the away record is appalling, but the away performances are are weak, um, particularly when conceding the first goal. I know, you know, I know the the, the, the last defeat at Newcastle actually came with Arsenal scoring first, but when when conceding a lead, um, Arsenal fall to pieces, as, as they have done in the bigger games. It, it, it feels as if the, that bigger game frailty is extending further and further through Arsenal's fixture list, which is, which is embarrassing, quite frankly. Um, the hope amongst some supporters, I'm sure, is that it, take, it will take this abject embarrassment to force change. So maybe, bizarrely, this is a good thing. Um, hmm. I'm still not completely convinced by that, but uh, I hope for Arsenal fans' sake that this does force change this summer because you're right, it's, it's been completely abject. Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I view this uh, Europa League campaign as, in, in some ways, it is the thing that's been propping everything up because without the, the, the safety net, if you like, of the Europa League, Arsene Wenger's position would be even more untenable because there's nothing left to play for from a Premier League point of view out of the FA Cup to to Nottingham Forest uh, earlier in the season. Um, I don't think we can complain too much about that, really, given our, our record in the FA Cup. But, you know, what a fan looks for is for his team to be competitive. And our Arsenal this season, from, from a Premier League point of view, have not been competitive. I, I'm curious as to how you feel the Wenger situation should be handled. There are two two very obvious Europa League scenarios. One is that Arsenal don't win it, and one is that they, they do win it. And winning it brings you a trophy, and that's a wonderful thing. It also brings you entry into the Champions League, something I'm, you know, I, I can see the benefits of from the club's point of view because it's got the money, it's got the prestige, it allows you perhaps to attract players. Um, but uh, on the other hand, 
You know, it's a competition that Arsenal have have not really done that well in down the years. But from Wenger's, from my point of view, I, I see it this way. If Arsenal don't win the Europa League and they finish sixth in the Premier League, Arsene Wenger should lose his job. And if Arsenal win the Europa League and finish sixth in the Premier League, we should all be very happy and proud, rightly so, of a great achievement to win the Europa League trophy. But it ought not to blind us to what's happening domestically and what's happening week in, week out with Arsenal. And that's evident Mm. in in the sixth place finish. And, And I really feel like it would be a terrible shame for both Arsenal and Arsene Wenger not to take the opportunity to go in a different direction and to go in that direction with uh, good wishes and goodwill from yeah. practically everyone. I think, you know, even those who would be staunch critics of Arsene Wenger would would be happy for him if he were to go out after everything he's done for the club with a trophy. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that was the argument in with him leaving in 2014 after the FA Cup win and the fourth place finish and that at least he would go out on a high since then. Um, I think his legacy has been... Um, put into further and further doubt. Uh, I, I hope that um, winning the Europa League would be a, a perfect way for him to go. Um, firstly, because it's a you know it's a very difficult trophy to win. Yeah. Uh, secondly, secondly, because it's a trophy that um, you know Arsenal have not had huge amounts of success in, mainly because of their Champions League participation. Granted, um, and it would also allow the club to be. Uh, far more attractive to a new manager if they've got Champions League football uh, next season, which is going to be important if there are going to be huge structural changes. Yeah, I, I hope either way, for his and Arsenal's sake, this is his last season, and and therefore I hope that if it is going to be his last season, he can do it with his head held higher than you know than staring down to the ground, which mm. is what it would look like if you finish sixth and and go out to Atletico. I think the idea of the, the Premier League form is is really interesting because last season Jose Mourinho made a raft of changes um, in his Premier League teams. They, I think they won one of the last six in the league uh, and won the Europa League. And there's a, I think some people have said, well, it's the same as that, so it doesn't really matter about the league form. But mm. actually it's very different to that because Jose Mourinho was in his first season at Manchester United and therefore could make various um, payoffs between priorities because he had you know, he would still consider himself on the way up at that club. Um, it's very different for Arsene Wenger. And this this league form, Europa League or otherwise, matters uh, to him because this is his audition to to be considered the right man for the job in the Premier League next season. And, and if he cannot get anything more than he is in his away games out of those fringe players, it says uh, very little about his ability to stay on in the job. Uh, so, yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I hope you win the Europa League and I hope that that means Wenger walks off into the sunset with a little bit more of a spring in his step yeah, I mean, I, it's not that you can make the case that Arsenal's Europa League success or progress is because we prioritise that competition. You know, no. now, clearly, over the coming weeks, uh, with the two Atletico games, Manchester United sandwiched in the middle of that, uh, he is going to have to prioritise. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was a little bit of it with AC Milan, but the Europa League campaign has been carried out by... Um, the fringe players, for the most part, certainly the group stage was fringe players. It was young players. We saw Reese Nelson, Maitland Niles, Joe Willock, all get starts uh, on a fairly consistent basis in, in the Premier League. And um, in some ways, it makes the Premier League form and Arsenal's Premier League position even worse because he was able to rest key players. He wasn't playing his top players week in, week out, as he does in the Champions League, or playing, you know, Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Sunday, mm. you know. He he was able to keep players fresh, and the, the hope, I suppose, was that by doing that, he would have a more competitive Premier League team. As it stands, Arsenal under Arsene Wenger are on a on course for a record low number of points, perhaps a record amount of goals conceded, uh, and the lowest ever position that he will have finished in the Premier League. Yeah, and also this is this is all this Premier League form is all played to the backdrop of of figures at the club, including Wenger, talking up a title challenge last summer. Um, however far for, short of that Arsenal fall, the worse it looks on the club. So. You know, if they if they only go and win two of the last four or five games in the league this season, then Arsenal are going to finish a, a vast, vast amount away from from Manchester City, um, which I don't know everyone club is, but they're also going to finish a vast distance behind Liverpool and, and Manchester United and, and Tottenham. Tottenham as well. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there really is no defence 
Europa League or otherwise. I know I know Wenger has spoken frequently about the difficulties of Thursday night football and Sunday football and getting out of the routine of, um, of you know the routine of having to fly back from from various locations on Thursday night or early Friday morning and not getting full training sessions in. But still, I mean that is still no excuse um, because of the personnel he's, as you rightly say, has played in that group stage. I actually think if Arsenal win. The Europa League, they've managed the competition brilliantly, I have to say, because I think that's the right way to do it, to give to give youth a chance in the in the in the early stages when you play the weaker teams and then slowly and slowly build up the strength of the squad towards the final. I think that's the perfect way to play it. Um but it, this is the secondary competition to the Premier League, unfortunately. And in and in that competition and in Arsenal's priority competition, they've They've been woeful. Mm. It is, uh, you know, far from a foregone conclusion as well when you look at the quality of the opposition that Arsenal are going to face. Mm. I think one of the things that Arsenal have really struggled with at times are are teams who've been well-organised and well-drilled. It sort of goes against the grain of Arsenal, which is a bit more free-form and interpretive or whatever way you want to discuss Arsene Wenger's football philosophy. That's not the case with Diego Simeone. His players know exactly what they are supposed to do at all times. Um, It's going to be very difficult. I'm excited for it because of uh, simply because of the the fact it's a big club. It's two big games, Mm. hopefully two big games anyway. Um, And there's a a prize of a final at the end of it. But how do you view Arsenal's chances of coming through? I'm actually surprisingly confident. Perhaps it's because we haven't seen them against a big, a very big European, you know, one of the European elite for. for at least a year um, that we've forgotten what can happen to Arsenal in those games. But I look, Atletico Madrid should be favourites and rightly should be favourites. The, the difficulty for Wenger, as you say, is firstly Simeone's organisation, but also that Simeone's performance without vast amounts of spending is, you know, he is arguably the manager in European football that makes Wenger's last few years look the worst because on, not at, far from a shoestring budget, of course, because no elite club does that, but from on smaller budgets than those around him domestically, he has punched above his weight, which is exactly what Arsenal expect of Arsene Wenger. Um, so yeah, Atletico rightly favourites, but I, I do have a yeah, I do have a. I, I know measuring sneaking suspicions is not particularly calculated or <laughs> uh, statistical, but I do have a sneaking suspicion because, it, especially if, you, if Aaron Ramsey can come back and hit the ground running after this mini, you know, this mini knock, um, he's been crucial all season in Arsenal's best performances. So if he can do that, then I think you can atone for the for the loss of of Aubameyang. Um, it's a shame. It's a huge shame that the cup tied rules that will change next season. Yeah, it's a huge shame that 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 they are not in place already because that could be a massive, massive loss. I mean, the one, yeah, uh, on the flip side of that, of course, is the fact that Arsenal... Uh, have had some defensive issues, it's fair to say, <laughs> in in, in uh, this season in terms of formations, personnel, goalkeepers have been dodgy, uh, central defenders have been dodgy, fullbacks have been a bit dodgy at times as well. There is a soft spot there for Atletico to exploit. And it's, the, the, the thing that frustrates me most about it is that it's not that these players aren't capable. We've seen them play very well and defend very well at times. You know, I think one of the best performances this season was the 2-0 win at home to Spurs, where Arsenal had a Mm -hmm. back three that looked really, really like it knew what it was doing. And almost immediately in the wake of that game, Arsene Wenger started his shift back to a back four. Um, Mm. It really depends how he approaches these games. He's got players who look better, I think, in a back three than they do in a back four, certainly a centre-halves. Uh, it's whether or not he has enough trust in that system and that formation from an attacking point of view uh, to make it happen against Atletico. Yeah, and, and and I mean, the standout one-on-one battle for me is, uh, and actually he's been left out of Atletico's squad tomorrow night, so he's slightly struggling with injury, but obviously they have, they've got Diego Costa, who... Um, as much as Antoine Griezmann's pace on the break will 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 trouble Arsenal, although coming off from the left, you hope that you know maybe Bellerin is given a kind of a job to look after him. But yeah, it's Costa versus Mustafi, um, which 
I mean, yeah. it, will, it will make some Arsenal fans wince, I'm sure, because mm-hmm. there's clearly a, an issue with Mustafi in terms of his anticipation at the moment. He's twice been beaten on near post runs. But there's also an, a, a suspicion with all Arsenal defenders that if you, if you again, if you get amongst them and you, you know, put pressure on them and you rile them up, then you can force mistakes pretty easily and, and there are few in Europe who will delight in doing more than that than Costa mm. Stick Rob holding on him like we did in the FA Cup final in, in <laughs> yeah. 2017 you know at this point uh, what what is there to lose anyway look we better leave it there we'll keep fingers crossed uh, for uh, two good ties against Atletico Daniel great to talk to you as always lovely thanks very much mate thank you very much indeed to Daniel you can find him writing lots of good stuff on Football 365 and other places too uh, he is also on Twitter at Daniel Story 85 that's at Daniel Story 85 <laughs> Okay, joining me now to uh, discuss the thorny issue of attendances at Arsenal, Tim Stillman. Hello. Hello there. Arsene Wenger was asked about attendances at Arsenal today at his press conference, or on Thursday at his press conference. Well, it is today. I should give up pretending that it's actually uh, yesterday. But uh, you know how it goes. Try to keep up the pretense of uh, live broadcast, even though it's a podcast. Anyway, the point is, Arsene Wenger was asked about attendances uh, at his press conference and it's it's obvious to everybody that there is an issue, and it's obvious to everybody that there is a problem. Anybody who's got eyes can see it. It's very, very clear that there's something wrong. There's something going on. We all know what it is at a very base level. The people just aren't turning up to games. I played a little clip of it earlier on. What I want to do is present his comments in full. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just play this little clip, and then we'll pick it up after. No, it's not to be concerned, because... Uh, uh our crowd is very solid at the moment. Of course, uh, we have played on some special days. We have, uh, we don't go for the league, and uh, uh, I believe we have a very faithful uh, crowd, very faithful fans, who uh, uh, will always be there and support the club. And uh, when you look at the renewal numbers for next season, they are absolutely outstanding. You don't believe then fans are turning their back on on the club at home games? No. Look, uh, our fans, I don't know, we are sold out in every single game, so I don't know where the problem is at the moment. If that uh, next season it will not be the case, we'll have to face it. But I believe uh, if you look at our numbers and our uh, how much people want to renew tickets for next season, I don't believe that we have a major problem. We have a major problem at the moment because they're not in a position to win the league. That is our biggest problem. It's the biggest problem is not the the number of fans who are behind the team. All right, so that was the manager. Um, <laughs> it, it was quite the response, really, isn't it? Um, just very quickly, before I get into specifics, what, what do you make of that, just as a response? And what's your gut feeling about what he's saying there? So on one hand, there's a lot of self-preservation there, right? Because, you know, he, he can't or won't, well, he can't really just say, yeah, no one's turning up because we're, we're not very good and the football's crap. Um, because, you know, he's, he's, yeah. he's in a job where he can't do that. He also must understand as well that, um, that the club are kind of looking at him. You know, the last contract renewal um, wasn't exactly a smooth process. And so he knows that he's being judged by his, uh, shall we say, in, in 
inverted commas bosses mm. um and so and he knows they can see it and so he's kind of got to try and make the best of a bad situation so there's a little bit of self-preservation and actually he he gets to the crux of the problem at the end where he <laughs> he doesn't explicitly connect the two but he says it's the problem is we're not competing for the league that's the big problem and that is the problem and that that very much correlates with why there are all these empty spaces yeah yeah um, I mean... so th- there's a lot of that but there's there's a lot of denial in there as well quite yeah. frankly that's what i was going to um, ask you about because it, you know there is a there is a touch of that because it's not the first time he's been asked about it and you know i I understand the the point of view that that he comes from it. Uh, you know, he's the manager. He doesn't want to create any kind of uproar by being critical of fans or being critical of. I mean, he's not going to be critical of of himself, but he has acknowledged that the team is not competitive. You know, I get it from that point of view, but I do feel like when the situation is as blindingly obvious as it is. You know, don't start talking about renewals, for example, when, as far as yeah. I'm aware, renewals have not yet gone out. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he, he, he's probably talking over, like, a, a number of years there. But, I mean, and again, he's, he's probably not really connected with the issue because it's, it's probably one of the few things at Arsenal that's just not his job that he doesn't oversee. I, I, I would have preferred perhaps to hear him say something like, look, we know that this is an issue and it's our responsibility to be more competitive, to play better football and to get mm. people interested again. I think that probably would have been a better response. But I think generally speaking, he's obviously defensive at the moment. He knows uh, there are a lot of eyes on him and he knows probably that his future's on the line a little bit. Mm. I mean, anecdotally, and it is only anecdotally, we hear stories, and I'm sure you've heard stories from uh, people you go to games with and friends and everything else, you know, about tickets being offered. I had an email during the week, a guy who had a very, very um, excited email from from the Arsenal sales team going, we're delighted to offer you this opportunity to purchase a club-level seat for next season. Starting prices are, you know, two and a half grand, rising to five and a half grand, I think, if you want to sit on halfway line. Mm. You know, the club are like, what a great, what a fantastic opportunity this is for you. Um, And people who perhaps have been on the season ticket waiting list and who would have expected under normal circumstances to wait a bit longer to be offered a season ticket have been offered tickets as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things um, with the season ticket waiting list is, is obviously, you know, they've got to create the illusion i mean there is demand but they've got to create the illusion of bigger demand so stuff like when you give up a season ticket you know um i've heard unconfirmed but i've heard those people kind of count on the waiter they count them on the waiting list um Mm. when people turn them over so you know and and to many respects that's completely understandable and they would probably do that even if we were winning the league every year they would you know massage the figures um, as it were. So there, there's, there's kind of an element of that. I think what's interesting about this, so in in one respect, this is completely unremarkable and completely typical um, to, for every single team in every single country, in probably every single sport, and not just sport. If you're less successful, if you're, you know, if you're a band, for example, mm. and you make some crap records, you go from playing Earl's Court to playing like, you know, some the, the very, and, very small venue. The that, dog and that, duck on the local high street, yeah. Exactly, that's that's just life. And, you know, Arsenal's attendances went down in the 80s and the 60s. I've had my, even in the early to mid-90s, when, you know, even under George Graham, a time when people felt good about George Graham and Arsenal, I, I've had my season ticket since 92. The way, the way I got mine was I turned up on the first game of the season against Norwich, and I bought it at the bro- at the at the box office, um, which is completely unthinkable now. But back in those days, people didn't really have season tickets. They didn't see the need for them because they could turn up um, on the gate and just buy straight away. But obviously, the kind of the ticketing culture has changed. The way they're sold has changed. So people buy season tickets now without intending to go to every game. It's just, it's convenient yeah. as much as anything. And you know that if you give it up, you're not going to get it back for a long time. So, um, so, so in that respect, it's completely unremarkable. Attendances dip when the team doesn't do as well. Um, that will always be the case. But what 
what does make this interesting is those seats are paid for. Um, mm. You know, Arsenal's not wrong when he says that every game is sold out. It pretty much is. I think there are a couple that we've kind of struggled with, but largely they are. And we've got 42,000 season ticket holders. And, you know, the, the pure numbers tell you that lots of season ticket holders are not going and are prepared to write off the cost of the seat, whether that's because they can't move them on or whether, you know, there's just a slightly more affluent kind of crowd at a, at a stadium like the Emirates who mm. can write it off. Um, because lots of this personally, I, I kind of think is passive protest. Um, I think there are a lot of people who come to the Emirates who aren't really that engaged with Arsenal other than when they go to the games. Mm. And um, I think a, a large section of the no-showers, um, don't get me wrong, there will be some people, a lot of people who, who are making an active point. But I honestly think with a lot of them, it's just, well, it's Arsenal versus Stoke. It's Easter Sunday. The trains are a bit rubbish. There's nothing riding on it. I'd rather do something else with my Sunday. And it's probably not like this angry activism. It's, yeah. it's just, you know, going to Arsenal is something they do sure. every other week. And at the moment, they'd rather not do it. Yeah, I, um, I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, it, whether it's active or whether it's passive, whether it's a guy who's saying, I'm not going until things change, I'm fucking fed up with all this, or whether it's someone who just goes, well, I can't be arsed. Uh, you know, it all the, means the same thing. It, it all it basically means the same thing because if it, it boils down to uh, being excited, being uh, captivated, being enthralled, being interested by what's happening, because you know, if you were fully, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just ensconced engaged. in a foot, engaged. That's exactly the word I was looking for by what the team were doing on the pitch then you would be there, you know, by hook or by crook, whether it's Easter Sunday, fucking a month of Sundays or yeah. anything else, you know, people would be there. But as ever, that throws up a debate, doesn't it? You know, if, if, if uh, football fans can find something to to talk about and to discuss and to argue about, they, they certainly will. I mean, yeah. how do you view the, the, the situation? Um, you know, people who are deliberately staying away, uh, you, you get people who say, well, I would take that ticket. I'd love to have that ticket. I'd yeah. love to have the chance to go. Um and there's criticism of people who are deciding to stay away. On the other hand, you people who say it's their right. They've paid for their ticket. Yeah. It's their money. They can do what they want with it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those where there probably isn't a, a right answer. It's, it's sort no. of a black or white or not a black or white situation. Yeah, indeed. I, I, I struggle um, with that question myself because there's a big part of me that thinks, well, even if you're not going to go, give up that ticket. At, at the same time, I do think a lot of people, again, this kind of illusion of demand, a lot of people say they want things that actually they don't um, really. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a bit, it's it's kind of a bit like um, when people say, I, I really wish Arsenal, like, .com, like, showed all the youth team games and stuff. And actually, there was a period where they did, and they were getting less than a thousand viewers, um, mm. which is kind of why they stopped doing it. But everyone said they wanted to, and, and there's a little bit of that going on. And to be quite honest, by hook or by crook, it's not difficult to get these tickets. But at the same time, there is a big part of me that thinks, well, you know, surely, uh, and this is probably the culture change I was talking about. If you're going to have a season ticket, surely that should mean you're, you're, you're committed to going to every game. And if you're not going to be committed to going to every game, then you should have like a silver membership or a red membership where yeah. you can dip in and out. But on the other hand, there, there is a very, very strong argument, which I also um, have full sympathy with, which is exactly that. You, you can't tell people to do, um, you know, you, you can't tell people what to do with things that they paid for. And that's mm. not within my gift or anyone else's. I, I probably lean because of the type of, I don't know, I, I hate saying like the type of fan I am or whatever. I, you know, it, we all want everyone to be like us effectively, but. I fully understand that not everyone is like that. And also understand that people who are making like the active protest would, would say, and I think with some justification, look, I'm, I'm trying to, I, I care about this so much that I'm depriving myself yeah. because I want change. And, and I have, I have kind of full sympathy with that as well. So yeah. I, I, I really, I struggle with it yeah. philosophically. Um, quite a lot i think with the athleti tie for example that sold out quite quickly yeah surprise surprise that 
with that one, I, I kind of tend to think, well, you know, actually there are quite a lot of people who probably wanted tickets but couldn't get them. Mm. And so I'd feel a little bit more perhaps strongly about people who don't want to go giving someone else the opportunity. Whereas, sure. you know, let's face it, for Stoke and Watford, I think people could have got <laughs> her, their hands on a ticket if they wanted to quite yeah. easily. I mean, so, how, how, yeah. how much uh, of this, I mean, we, we, we talk about fans, but one of the things I suppose that that often comes up are the mechanisms through which fans can uh, yeah. enable the use of their tickets if they're not going to go. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the ticket exchange is there, but that can only be put in place once a game is sold out. Yeah. Uh, a number of times games uh, haven't sold out. Um, you know, are, are the club or could the club do more to help enable fans to, to buy tickets or to uh, move their tickets? I mean, there's, you know, the, you would know, obviously, if somebody goes uh, home and away, that there are away credits that you yeah. get credits when you go away, which enables you to purchase those tickets that if in some way there was a home credit system that your ticket has to go through the turnstile, otherwise, you know, I don't know how you would work it exactly, but there are, yeah. you know, people have spoken about that side of things as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think they could make um, the ticket exchange much more flexible. And this is something the Arsenal Supporters Trust is hugely keen on and spoken about and written about um, and broadcast about quite a lot at the moment. It's, you know, it's quite limited time. You mm. can't do it like right up until kickoff or the day of the game, for example. Um, and, and so I, I think there are ways they could make it more flexible. I do think, personally, I think home credits are a good idea. Um, we're getting to quite a few cup finals at the moment and, you know, you could tier the cup final ticket sales in a way that says, even if it's not you in your seat, if you pass, as long as your seat is full, that's a credit mm. for you. Um, I, I haven't thought of a reason not to do that, but there may well be quite a good one, uh, which I'm quite open to, but I would be completely open to the idea of home credits as well but to be honest th th that's that's kind of details it, it doesn't get away from the fact that people aren't going because they don't really want to and mm. um, just for, finally i know we like to think the club have got their finger on the pulse and everything else but how, how do you how do you view the, the the work that's going to go on this summer at the stadium and if people don't know I think they're adding another 660 seats or something but they're adding them to club level and yeah. if there's an area of the ground which is the which is empty first <laughs> it's usually club yeah. level right because I'm not suggesting yeah. anybody who goes uh, and has a club le level ticket is any less a fan than anyone else but there are people who at that level perhaps um don't view it in the same way as as uh you know there's a lot of corporate entertainment for example uh that that kind yeah. of a thing i mean when you see the ground as empty as it has been and i'm sure there will be swathes of empty seats on sunday when we face west ham mm. it's hard to get your head around the idea that we're adding 600 plus of the most expensive seats in the ground which are going to be the most difficult to fill anyway yeah yeah i so I'm, I'm not familiar with the architectural aspect of it. Maybe. I, I suspect club level is just the easiest place to do it. Mm. And it's the place that um, there's the most kind of scope for it and that causes the least disruption. And they can do it in like they're doing it just over the summer. So it doesn't cause any, um, any, any kind of um, obstruction or disruption to people. Whereas if, if, for example, they tried to do it, I don't know, in like the clock end upper, maybe they'd have to close like half the stand for a year or something. Yeah. So that there, there might well be, I, I don't know that there is, but there might well be that aspect to it. Otherwise, yeah, I, I mean, if they were selling those seats, I could completely understand it because if you add 660 seats where people pay like four grand a year <laughs> compared to 660 seats where people pay 1500 a year, that's, you know, that's just mathematics. Mm. But, um, yeah otherwise i don't quite get it um i you know i i don't sense that there's a huge demand for club level if anything, <laughs> the opposite and even over time i think those ones are going to be the hardest to shift particularly when um you, you know you you kind of factor in that chelsea and spurs are building new stadiums so we're not the only big nice stadium in london anymore mm. um you know, West Ham's is a bit 
it's a bit of a thorny subject, but West Ham also have like a 50,000 plus stadium with nice corporate. So that there's there's quite a lot of competition there. And maybe that's what it's about as well. Maybe they think, well, this this is where, you know, the the war, as it were, will be won over the next 10 years. But yeah, I, I, I find any extension of the stadium at this particular moment <laughs> in time difficult to fathom but if they can do it easily cheaply without too much disruption and they think that that they can fill them to any degree then I, I suppose it's worth it but my understanding is that extending the general admission areas shall we say is is far far more difficult well, look, uh, the, uh, the, the wails and screams that you hear right now are the, uh, the sales team trying to shift all those club-level seats ahead of next <laughs> season, particularly if we don't have Champions League football. But uh, that's, that's yet to be decided. We'll keep fingers crossed on that. Um, uh, obviously, a, a trophy at the end of the season will be very, very nice. But we'll leave it there, Tim. Thanks a million. Pleasure. Thank you to Tim Stillman. You can find him on Twitter, of course, at Stilberto. And he writes a column every week for arsblog.com, which you can find Wednesdays or Thursdays. It depends. It's the Europa League. It messes with all of our schedules, but it is there every week. This week, if you want to take a look, he's talking about our away form and the reasons for it, so do go check that out. And Tim is going to do some extra stuff for us on Arsblog News. We are expanding our coverage of the Arsenal women's team, and we're also expanding our coverage of the Arsenal reserves and youth. George Bird, who's our correspondent there, who also has his own website. But George is going to come on board and do some more stuff uh, around the Arsenal youth. So we're going to have more on the Arsenal women's team, more on Arsenal youths and this is in no small part to all of the uh, Arsblog members on Patreon uh, who are uh, signed up getting some extra content but they're also helping us do more with Arsblog and Arsblog News so thank you very much indeed uh, to everybody who is a member so far if you're not you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Arsblog it's a five or a month plus VAT if you're in the EU, you do get some extra content and you do help support everything that we do here and you will help us do even more in the week's and months to come. So, Sunday, West Ham. Arsene Wenger says he's not really going to rotate that much because he needs players to have a game ahead of the Atletico game. It's a balancing act, though, isn't it? It's a risk. What if you play your good players and then your good players get injured? Can you really go into a game thinking like that? Do you have to uh, consider the worst possible scenario or the best possible scenario? That they play, they play well, they get match fit and they get match sharp and that's what you need when you go into a game against a team as good as Atletico Madrid or what if someone gets a kick what if they pull a muscle what if they do a hamstring I don't know who'd be a football manager not me no well I would be for a little while maybe a season season and a half till they all uh, found me out for being the complete charlatan that I was but you know there'd probably be a fairly healthy salary involved I mean I wouldn't take a job below the Premier League or anything I don't feel like I should have to work and uh, prove my stripes and work my way through the ranks to get a good job no I should just get it because, uh, you know, I've got the whole Ryan Giggs thing going on. Just give me a good job. I want it. Please. Anyway, we'll wait and see what Arsene Wenger does on Sunday. I think we do need a good performance and a good result just to give us a bit of rhythm, a bit of momentum going into the uh, the first leg against Atletico Madrid, which is going to be a hell of a game. So next week, as well as the Arsecast Extra on Monday with James, I'll have a little extra bonus podcast talking about the Atletico game with a uh, Spanish football correspondent. And also just this evening, just as we are talking about ticketing and have been talking about ticketing with Tim, Arsenal have announced that... Uh, uh, they're going to subsidize tickets for the traveling fans going to Madrid. Uh, Atletico Madrid were charging Arsenal fans £79 to go to the game, the second leg in Madrid, whereas the uh, Spanish fans were being charged £36.50 uh, for their visit uh, next Thursday. So a huge discrepancy there between the two ticket prices. Uh, Arsenal have subsidized the tickets for the Arsenal fans who are going over there. I think that's a great gesture and it's to be applauded. A lot of people have uh, said a lot of critical things about the club and the way that it's run and uh, many of them with merit, but I think here they deserve great credit and uh, kudos to them for doing that but I think it ought to start a conversation as to why a situation like this is allowed in the first place how is it one set of fans are getting charged more than double than the other set of fans it seems very arbitrary there really should be some measure of harmonization between the two clubs when they play in Europe like this I know they want to make hay and English uh, football clubs are seen as having deep pockets fans 
aren't English football clubs, though. You know, fans have to pay for their travel. They've got to pay for their accommodation. They may have to take time off work. Uh, They're not the ones with the deep pockets. The football clubs are, not the fans. So hopefully this will show up Madrid for what they tried to do. I know that uh, Manchester United did something similar when Sevilla charged their fans uh, outrageous prices for the trip over there. So maybe it will spark a conversation. Maybe it uh, it will make something happen from that point of view because I think all fans should be treated... Uh, as fairly and equitably as possible when it comes to tickets. So, well done, Arsenal. If you could follow that up with a win on Sunday, another one on uh, Thursday, uh, that would be great too. But look, uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you as ever for listening. Remember, if you want to give us a rating or review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. We really appreciate those. We'll have the Arsecast Extra on Monday. We'll have the special extra bonus podcast as well. Uh, So stay tuned for that. So until the next one, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Arsenal Football Club today announced a brand new development ahead of the 2018-19 season. Super Duper Diamond Gold Platinum Level will see the installation of eight brand new thrones, each coming with its own butler and a champagne fountain. Chairman Sir Chips Keswick said, We've got our finger on the pulse and we know what fans really want. After careful research, prices start at 9 99